Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back. This season, we have been studying the Book of Ruth together and having an amazing feast. I hope you have been learning as much about this incredible short book as I have. We are so fortunate to have a real Old Testament scholar with us to help us feast on this tiny little book. And what a feast we've been having. So we left Ruth at the moment where she had learned that rich and powerful Boaz did indeed love her and wanted her to be his wife. But there was another kinsman in the way. It feels a little bit like Juliet is just about to get her Romeo, only to discover before she can have him, she has to get permission from Bozo the Clown. We are going to see that Boaz has a few tricks up his sleeve as well. Let's jump back into it. True to his word to Naomi, Boaz was now a man on a man's mission. He had found a beautiful bride who wanted both him and his culture. He wanted her back. That very day, Boaz went to the city gate where men haggled over business dealings and waited for his relative to show up. It has been suggested that since Boaz was able to easily sit at the gate, that he may have also been considered one of the elders of the community. This is likely from the many other clues in the story that Boaz was a man of means, one of the princes of the tribe of Judah. The fact that later the kingly line would be attached to him further supports this view. Either way, he sat and waited. Ruth 4.1 Then went Boaz up to the gate, and sat him down there. And behold, 
the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke, came by. Unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. You will note that the scripture is purposely making the point of hiding this kinsman's name. We will see why in a moment. Despite this, tradition says that his name was Tov, and he was Boaz's uncle. When Boaz saw Tov, he called out, Ho, so-and-so. It's rather like saying, Hey, dude, today. Friendly and not too formal. The so-and-so here is a biblically correct way of dismissing him as basically a nobody. So we will have to go with that for now and explain it in a moment. And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. Having asked or ordered so-and-so to sit down, Boaz next summoned ten city elders to join them. You will note, ten plus Boaz plus kinsman so-and-so equals twelve. Twelve is a legal quorum of elders. Boaz means serious business here. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants, and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And the man said, I will redeem it. No, we cry out reading the account. Don't let the kinsman uncle nobody so-and-so marry the beautiful Ruth. She wants to be with Boaz. But we have misunderstood Boaz's plan. This is a man's game, and Boaz knows how to play it. Naomi and Ruth did their part and played their game, baiting the hook, and Boaz was caught. Now it's his turn to be the hero in the world of the men. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. Boaz publicly gets the man to agree to redeem the land for Naomi. Okay, fine, they are family and good Jews too. But Ruth? Ruth was known throughout the city. A young pretty girl often is, but she was not an Israelite. The Mosaic law forbade marriage outside of the greater Israelite family. Boaz has carefully connected the transaction in such a way that in order to do the honorable thing for the family, so-and-so also has to redeem... Melon, and give his non-Jewish wife children. Here the tone changes. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. A big wahoo and sign of relief from the romanceaholics everywhere. Boaz is getting Ruth, and legally, in front of the elders, so now so-and-so and everyone else can't say it wasn't honestly done. Possibly even done as a burden to help out Naomi and stupid Malon, who went his way and married a foreigner to boot. It is brilliantly played out. Naomi is family, and she is destitute. Boaz takes one for the team. But what if so-and-so's excuse that by doing so he would taint his own inheritance? The law forbade an Israelite to marry a Moabitess. It is recorded here. Deuteronomy 23.3 3. 
An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Uncle So-and-so understood the dilemma, but had no answer other than he didn't want any Moabite sons or daughters mixing with his bloodline. So why did Boaz want her? Why wasn't he worried about tainting his bloodline? There is an interesting point here. The clue is found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, as recorded by Matthew. Matthew 1.1 The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Pharez and Zara of Tamar, and Pharez begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and so on down to Jesus Christ. The interesting clue here is in the inclusion of Boaz's mother. Who was Rahab? You should note that the Old Testament spells her name differently than the New Testament, but it's the same woman. Rahab was the harlot who saved the spies of Israel who had gone into Jericho in the days of Joshua. She was the one who let the men down the city wall with a red rope and then lied to her king about it. Israel made a pact with her, and when the Lord destroyed the city, she and anyone in her house would be spared. So now you know who Rahab was. The last part of her story goes like this. Rahab met one of the princes of the tribe of Judah, the handsome Salmon. She converted to Judaism, and they started their family in Bethlehem. Together, they had a son who they named Strength. We know him by his Hebrew name, Boaz. I suspect that Boaz didn't have the cultural hang-ups that others of his countrymen had. Yes, the law forbade marriage outside of Israel. But what about a convert, or a heroine, or a woman saved by the Lord's oath and brought into the community? Salmon married a former Jerichodian prostitute, turned heroine. Boaz knew and loved his mother. She raised him to be such an honorable Jew that when his own kinsman Elimelech ran away to Moab rather than support Israelis in need, Boaz and Rahab stayed and used their wealth and land to help. Boaz's kindness to Ruth and his deep joy at seeing her embrace Mosaic law are all testaments to his wider view that Israel really was a light to all the world. We should also note that he may have gotten around the Moabite problem by claiming Ruth as a Leverite, suggesting that any sin, if at all, fell on the head of her dead husband. Malon had married her, and now she was claiming her rights in Israel. In the end, it doesn't really matter. Boaz married Ruth, and she is one of the mothers of Jesus Christ. You can't get any more Jewish than that. We will come back to the second reason soon. We have not finished our story just yet. There are few more pearls to cast. Ruth 4.7 Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. It was the custom in ancient Israel 
that if you were unwilling to fulfill your part of a contract, you could in shame take off a shoe and give it to the one you offended. The idea here is that a shoe guards your walk. A man's walk to the Hebrews was connected to his will. There are many scriptures that deal with this. Even the Lord's famous, Come, follow me, has to do with which direction your feet take you. By giving one of your shoes to the one that you have honestly injured, you are acknowledging that your walk was crooked. It was a public way of saying, I'm sorry about this choice I made for both of us. At least in that I am being honest. We acknowledge that the Lord's path is better than ours when we take off our shoes before Him on holy ground or in His holy house. Uncle So-and-So's shame was Boaz's right to marry. And Boaz said unto the elders, and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, and all that was Shilon's and Malon's, of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Pharaoh's, whom Tamar bore unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. Their prayer is that Ruth might be famous in Bethlehem, and remembered like all the great family names before her. She is truly an accepted Jew now. You can't get any more Jewish than Rachel, Leah, and Tamar. These matriarchs who did all they could to make certain that the seed of Jacob grew to fulfill the promises of God, that the blood of Father Abraham would be as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. They prayed that she might be as bountiful beyond any mortal count. Had these women not risked their health, lives, and happiness to bear the chosen house of God, we could not have embraced the promises as abundantly as we do today. The nest Ruth created out of the fields Boaz guarded are said to have in time become the shepherd fields of David. It is said that these very fields, 2,000 years ago, fed the tender lambs that were bred for the temple sacrifices. Merely a stone throw away on the land of Ruth and Boaz, an angel choir suddenly appeared to the shepherds. Every Christmas time, we read and sing. Luke 2.1 And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, 
I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Ruth is the story of love and mercy. Here we see that what the law could not do, mercy and grace made possible. Our God is a God of justice and mercy. As such, we can both trust His word and love His kindness. He is also truly no respecter of persons, but willing to embrace and bless all who will come to Him, on His terms, with a humble heart. Celestial thinking naturally follows celestial patterns, which are ultimately without beginning or end. Since truth is eternal and human experience is circular, we can learn so much about God from the patterns He instigates. I hope it has been obvious that this story is more than a heartwarming tale of human love. It is that. It is also a lesson in the love Jesus Christ has for all humanity. Jesus is our strength and our goel. We rejoice that one so worthy and strong is our kinsman redeemer. He is our Boaz. You and I are Ruth or Naomi. We either come into the field of God's harvest through mature choice, Ruth, or by birthright, Naomi. Prior, we have all delayed in Moab too long, and like prodigal sons and daughters, yearn to be safe and clean again at home in Zion. Our Father God knows this. His plan included wanting us to learn, by our own experience, to judge the good from the evil. If we learn the lesson eventually and come home to Him, He is joyous. He knows that He has gained another child who finally gets it. We have returned home smarter more loyal, more ready to act the adult as a prince or princess in the kingdom. This takes time to learn. Just don't stay away too long and don't sin away all your rights as you were learning. If you are finally miserable in Moab, come home. Once you set your pride aside, you will discover that you are the only one keeping you away. While you might have to glean for a season while Boaz watches, very soon you will discover the wings of the Lord. And even better, that your Heavenly Father has been saving a fattened calf for your return celebration all the time. Joseph Smith was right again. Be wise today. Tis madness to defer. There is nothing that we have done that God doesn't already know about. He sees all. So the place to start is on your knees, talking to Him. Once you open the door, God can take it from there. But He will not take your right of agency from you. His best son died to give you that gift, and it is precious. So the first move is yours. Whatever the degree of our forgiveness, each of us needs our goel to save the day. Again, the model is Boaz. Jesus was born into the family of man as the only begotten of the Father, and his earthly mother, our kinswoman, Mary. Thus, the Lord is our kinsman. He is willing to pay for our ransom, which he did for our sins in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then for Eve and Adam's choice on the cross at Calvary. He was also able to do it. This, for me, is the miracle. Even though we have given him one shoe in shame as acknowledgement of our crooked path, Jesus held it up as a marriage license and claimed us before the Father and all the elders of heaven anyway. Jesus Christ lived the Father's commandments to the letter of the law. This very letter included the burdensome law of Moses as well as all of the other laws from Adam through Abraham. He is truly worthy of our praise and affection. Jesus Christ is our one mighty and strong. He is our bridegroom. One way to join with Christ and thereby gain his reward is to be his wife, albeit symbolically. 
It works in heaven's eyes because Zion vicariously replaces Eve, just as the Lord vicariously replaces Adam. In other words, when God built a home for his children and placed a man, Adam, and a woman, Eve, there, he officially married them as one flesh. He commanded them to raise a family and fill up the earth. At a moment of separation, the father's enemy, a fallen angel named Lucifer, tricked Eve into disobeying the father's law. When she realized that her beguiling served a useful purpose, but would also force her and Adam to be apart, she went to him and explained the situation. The important thing to understand, in terms of symbolism, is that while Eve emphatically stated that she was beguiled or tricked into transgressing, Adam fell with his eyes wide open so that men might be, and to save Eve. Without a kinsman redeemer of her own blood, she would have died and been cast off forever. The entire history of man can be symbolically read as Adam giving his life to save Eve. It works like this. You and I come to earth innocent like Eve. In the innocence of our limited experience, we find ourselves in the presence of an archdemon of such skill and chicanery that soon we are beguiled by twisted truths, perfected lies, and the mixture of both. Before we can fully appreciate what we have done, but being grateful for the expansion of knowledge gained, we find ourselves, as Eve, with increased wisdom, but no way of making reconciliation for the sin. This is where the second Adam comes into play. Jesus took upon himself our deadly dilemma with his eyes wide open. He fell willingly so as to be able to save the rest of us. Adam fell that men might be. What does this mean? Had Adam chosen not to fall, Eve would not have been savable, because her salvation was dependent on her ability to bear her Savior in the flesh at a future date. Without Adam to start humanity with, she would have been cut off forever. Love saved her, and love saves us. It was Adam's knowledge that he could not have Eve without falling that made his choice an act of love. This would become, forever after, the model of love redemption. Jesus became the new Adam who knowingly fell in righteousness, and all the rest of us became the new Eve renamed Zion by her bridegroom. We, like Eve, gained wisdom by the experience. Further evidence of the symbolism can be seen at the cross. Remember this. John 19.31 The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers, and brake the legs of the first, and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. The above account makes no sense outside of symbolism. The exposure of the rib of Christ on the cross effectively gave birth to the church, which would connect us to him eternally as man and wife. Just as Adam could never be whole without Eve, who carried his rib, Christ, who bore our sins and took our names upon himself forever, bound us together as one flesh. In marriage, man and woman become one flesh, just as Adam and Eve literally were. 
By definition, it is impossible to be perfect if one is not whole. Once we are bound to Jesus as his bride, we are required by all the laws of man and heaven to go where he goes, to be what he is, to own jointly what he owns. Do you get it? This particular symbolism is most profoundly illustrated in the good works and ordinances of the holy temples, ancient and modern. It is clearly witnessed in the Lord's workings with his people as well. Much of the symbolism here is a reenactment of a Jewish marriage. The summation is easy. A wife is where her husband is. So if God is your husband, you get to sit in his throne with him as well. The making of two into one has a special word in English. The word is at-one-ment, atonement. Through marriage to a royal prince, Ruth has been saved with Israel. She was also made famous by heeding the call of the chosen and attaching herself by adoption to the holy house. It would serve as a model for God's plan to save the world. By blessing Israel with one mighty and strong, and by extending that strength to all the Gentiles that would come, the Lord hoped to make Israel the helpmeet that gleaned the world. Marriage is an atonement in that it makes two into one flesh. What God has joined, no man or demon can break asunder. Furthermore, the law that condemned Eve was overwritten by the grace of the husband who claimed her and the children that she bore. Thus, what the law and justice was unable to do for us, the love and grace of God could do. It didn't matter if you were a Moabite or a harlot from Jericho. If you were the Magdalene at the feet of Christ, you were covered by his wing against his breast. There is no arm stronger. There none can hurt you, nor even dare to make you afraid. Every Gentile bloodline married into the house of Israel becomes one with Israel in blessings. And that is as good as it gets for anyone. Ruth 4.13 so Boaz took Ruth, and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And so they are. We also get to shout with them, Blessed be the Lord who has not left us without a kinsman. Today, we still know the names of Ruth and Boaz. What happened to Uncle So-and-So and Ruth's sister Orpha? Who? Exactly. As Zion the Bride, you and I get to have a part in all the Father hath. This includes his more intimate secrets. We also hold a second portion in terms of this symbolism. We are also the guests at the wedding of his beloved son. This son is the heir and firstborn prince, a very high position indeed. As guests, we are expected to have some presents to offer the king. Lucky for us, we have been given his wish list. He has asked us to be saviors on Mount Zion. And so we will. Yes, we all want to be welcomed at the second coming of our Lord and Savior, the great wedding feast of the Lamb of God. We are sadly out of time for this episode, but we are all eager to learn more about the present that he has asked us to prepare for him, our becoming saviors on Mount Zion. So until our next feast together, may the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of us. Music